I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Leonardo Rivera Rivera, a neuroimaging scientist at the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Dr. Rivera Rivera is the lead researcher on a recent study focused on the links between vascular health and Alzheimer's disease. Using new imaging technology developed here at UW-Madison, the study found that individuals with symptoms of Alzheimer's disease had stiffer blood vessels in the brain, which could lead to buildup of the Alzheimer's biomarker amyloid. Dr. Rivera Rivera, welcome to Dementia Matters. Hi, Nate. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're excited to have you. And before we get to your actual publication, I'd like to know what got you interested in Alzheimer's disease research and blood vessel imaging of the brain? Yeah, that's a story that started around 10 years ago. Um, I was finishing my bachelor's degree in physics and electronics in the University of Puerto Rico. And I wanted to combine that physics knowledge with some medical application. And I heard the Department of Medical Physics at UW-Madison was one of the best in the nation. So I applied to it. Uh, I, I got lucky to have an invitation. And during one of the presentations of the PIs, the professors that were hiring graduate students, uh, Dr. Oliver Weaven showed these beautiful images of the brain, but also of the blood vessels that were in those brains. And he created these, uh, these movies where you could see the blood flow in coming through the brain. So I said, oh no, that looks really cool. I would love to work doing that and, and improving the technology. And then I joined uh, Dr. Oliver's Women Lab and I was looking for a project to get things started. And around that time, Sterling Johnson and Howard Raleigh had added this vascular imaging method or technique called 4D flow MRI, specifically the technique developed at UW Madison, PC Viper. They have added this uh, imaging to the ADRC and the RAP imaging protocols. And they have acquired this data for three, four years. So they were finally at the point where they wanted somebody to work on this data, some graduate students to work and analyze on this data. So I was looking for a project and the opportunity uh, kind of came out of nowhere. And I, I started working on the uh, applications of 40 flow MRI to understand vascular contributions to dementia and interactions with Alzheimer's disease. And, and I got hooked. It has been such a great journey since, largely because of the great people that surround me here at UW Madison. And we're going to ask you about 4D flow in a few minutes. But before I get to that question, you know, cerebrovascular disease or blood vessel narrowing in the brain can cause dementia itself which we term vascular dementia. However, in your paper, you mentioned this overlap can exist between blood vessel disease and Alzheimer's disease, which we biologically define as this accumulation of proteins called amyloid and tau. So now we're talking about blood vessels and these other proteins of amyloid and tau. So can you provide for our listeners, what is this 
potential interaction between blood vessels and amyloid tau. Right. So cerebrovascular disease, as you mentioned, by itself can lead to vascular dementia. But it also happens to be one of the risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. And most of the time, neuropathology findings uh, show up uh, mixed pathology between Alzheimer's markers and vascular markers. And right now, this has led to a number of hypotheses that are trying to perhaps link a relationship between vascular disease and Alzheimer's disease. And one of these leading mechanisms or models is the one related to the clearance of this amyloid uh, protein from the brain. As you mentioned, this is a biomarker of Alzheimer's disease, amyloid is. Something is going wrong in the brain that is not being able to, to clear amyloid properly, or there is just too much. And it happens that one of the major pathways for clearance of metabolite and waste proteins, such as amyloid, in the brain, it happens to be driven by vascular-related pulsations. And here is where the models come in saying that if you have vascular stiffness, thus you're decreasing the pulsatility of your blood vessels in the brain, you're removing a driving force that pushes this amyloid protein outside of the brain. And thereby you're creating some kind of exacerbation of the, of the accumulation of the protein in the brain. And here's, that's the link, one of the links that we are trying to mechanistically study with our imaging techniques. So it sounds like pulsing the pulse is really important because in when you have vascular disease, there's stiff blood vessel, which means flow can actually be pretty high pressured, but you're not gonna have the pulsing. And it's the pulsing that might push amyloid to whatever system then that clears it out of the brain. Right, and now there are two major systems uh, that we believe where things are being pushed through. One is the glymphatic flow system, and this is cardiac pulsations induced by the heartbeat are believed to push interstitial fluid with this uh, amyloid protein through the CSF outside of the brain. And then there is another model that suggests that it's not the heartbeat's pulsations, but much slower, still cardiac pulsations, but these ones are driven by uh, muscle cell constrictions and autoregulatory processes. And this um, fluid transport no longer happens through perivascular spaces, but through paravascular spaces. So we have two leading models, one that uses high-frequency cardiac pulsations from heartbeats, and another one that uses low-frequency oscillations from smooth muscle cells in the vessel wall. And you're saying models and concepts. So these are still being worked on as far as trying to prove that one of them is actually happening and leading to amyloid clearance. That's exactly right. And one of the reasons why they're just models is because we have been lacking the technology to test some of this in, in human populations. And now in these past recent years, this model has been tested in mouse models where you can be invasive and you can look directly at the cerebrovasculature. In fact, in the scientific literature, there has been papers reporting mouse models where hypertensive mice showed a reduction on cardiac pulsation and also a reduction on clearance of amyloid through the CSF flow. And also 
others have shown that a reduction on smooth muscle cells and smooth muscle cell-driven low-frequency oscillations has been associated with increased cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Well, so that leads perfectly. So we, we need the right instruments if we're going to answer these types of really important questions, which gets me to your study now. So in your study, you utilize brain MRIs, which is something that I can get in the clinic, actually. And for our listeners, MRI stands for magnetic resonance imaging. And it is different than the PET scans, which we often talk about on this podcast. Uh, in the PET scans, those can identify those actual proteins of amyloid and tau. So in your paper, you talk about those limitations, though, even of MRI scans when it comes to identifying vascular disease, particularly in the context of Alzheimer's disease work. So can you share with us what these limitations are and then move to what this quantitative 4D flow MRI is that you used in your study? Yeah, I'm more than happy to do so. For the last 10 years, imaging protocols have not heavily focused on the vascular component when they are studying Alzheimer's disease. And I think in a way, this has created sort of a, a stagnation on the development of new imaging markers. And most of the uh, current longitudinal studies of Alzheimer's that want to study also vascular disease, they use MRI to measure structural changes called white matter hyperintensity, for example. These are lesions that you can see in, in the brain and they are non-specific. They can have many sources of origin, small uh, vessel disease, lacunar infarct, microhemorrhages. So they don't tell you much about disease interaction. They just tell you that something went wrong and here's a mark. And the same thing happens with uh, microhemorrhages, also a very common vascular biomarker. These microhemorrhages, microbleeds, Again, this is a marker that there was a leakage of blood, something went wrong. And, and then finally, cerebral blood flow perfusion using MRI, it basically tells you how much blood is being delivered to the tissue and also very popular marketing in AD studies. But the situation is that what happens if you have a change in, in noodle density, if you have a, a loss of neurons, then you will have less metabolic demand so it might drive a reduction in this CSF flow, uh, this uh, CBF perfusion, which means it's not necessarily telling you a lot about vascular health, but more about metabolic demand. And that has limited hypothesis testing of cerebrovascular disease and AD interactions. And here is where we are needing more specific and sensitive markers of vascular function and where the utilization of quantitative 40 flow MRI can really deliver new imaging markers that can directly probe the vessel health. And I'm, I might be uh, over-optimistic about these things, <laughs> but I think we have uh, preliminary data to support uh, such claims. And UW-Madison has a long history with this uh, quantitative 40 flow MRI. It was originally conceived by Chuck Mistreta in the medical physics department and subsequently developed by Oliver Weaven, Kevin Johnson, and other people that have come along. And right now is a very unique sequence that we have here at UW Madison that we are trying to bring it to other centers because we are showing promise to helping us understand 
cerebrovascular disease interactions with Alzheimer's disease. And what this imaging does is it captures the blood flow along the cerebral vasculature, and you can actually see the blood flow moving, and you can then characterize the vessel health, such as vessel stiffness, pulsatility, this uh, contraction and ex expansion related to the smooth vessel cells and whatnot. So it is, it's, a, it's an MRI scan, just like most MRI scans, but now you're able to actually measure the flow of blood through the blood vessels in the brain. Exactly. And it takes as long as your typical MRI, five minutes. It doesn't have too much scan time, but very smart people have developed very smart ways of acquiring the data. And now we can generate these really cool brain images that let us reach previously unattainable vascular biomarkers. So the fourth dimension is flow. Is that right? So we create a movie. So you have your 3D spatial dimensions and we see it as it evolves through time. That's pretty darn cool. All right. Well, so then with that all in mind, and I spent a lot of time kind of building that background because your paper is technical. And so what did you look at? in this study, and it was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. So what were you looking at and what did you end up finding? So during my PhD studies and my postdoc and now scientist position, we have been working uh, using this imaging modality in Alzheimer's. And those original studies look at the cerebrovascular health in clinically diagnosed Alzheimer's disease patients. These are people that were showing cognitive impairment, and we identified stiffer vessels and some decrease in the cerebral blood flow. But this was always on clinically diagnosed participants. And as you know, they might have a mixture of neuropathologies. It could be vascular dementia, it could be Alzheimer's disease. So in order to truly understand the Alzheimer's disease relationship with cerebrovascular disease, we need AD biomarkers. And finally, after uh, all those years, uh, the great efforts here at the WADRC and the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention, Sterling Johnson, and all the other great researchers, Sanjay Stana, and everybody else, uh, we have a large cohort of really well-characterized individuals with AD, but also at risk of developing AD that have AD biomarkers, that have these either from CSF or from PET imaging. They have these amyloid burden and tau burden markers that we can utilize to truly understand the relationship between CVD and AD. So in this paper, we did look exactly at that. We, we look at how does cerebrovascular health looks in cognitively healthy adults that have AD biomarkers. Those were the most interesting group because we already have looked at those that had already cognitive decline. So we wanted to see what is going on in the cerebrovasculature of people that are perfectly normal, but they are accumulating amyloid proteins on the brains or tau proteins on the brains. And so what, because this is, this is a perfect example of the importance of people volunteering for research, because now you have this huge cohort, you have a lot of data, you have a lot of imaging scans. And instead of looking at people that I might see in my clinic that have cognitive impairment, you're looking at healthy research volunteers who don't have symptoms, presumably. And we know, though, based on the amyloid and tau PET scans that they have proteins that look like Alzheimer's disease. And now you're looking at their blood vessel health in these individuals. 
And so knowing that, I mean, what, what did you find? So yeah, so we know that once you start accumulating amyloid, it seems to follow a very predictable time course of accumulation. And we also know that it can take up to more than 20 years to start develop symptoms after initial amyloid accumulation. So studying this preclinical phase is so important because that's where targeted treatments might have the highest impact. And again, if we want to study these CBD interactions, we need sensitive markers that can look at things before it's too late, before looking at downstream effects, we want to, we want to look at early vascular modifications. And, and in fact, what we found was that in preclinical subjects that were accumulating amyloid and tau, they did show an increase in vessel stiffness and also a decrease of these vasomotion-induced low-frequency oscillations, suggesting, indicating that there are vascular alterations happening during the preclinical phase of Alzheimer's disease. And this perhaps is distinct from vascular dementia contributions to cognitive impairment. Now, you're not able to determine which came first, though, right? The vascular stiffness or the amyloid or tau proteins. Is that true? That is true. And determining causality is such a hard question. At this point, what I believe is that perhaps there is a synergistic influence happening where you have AD pathology, and then in addition to that, there's some vascular changes that are happening, and, and they create an exacerbation of the AD biomarker accumulation, which could help explain the heterogeneity that you often see in the clinic from presumably Alzheimer's disease patients. And did you see a more pronounced finding in certain individuals? And I'm thinking about those with that genetic risk factor, ApoE4, or any, or people who have other serious chronic conditions like diabetes. Was there a difference in that group of people? So in, in the previous paper that came out in 2020, we specifically found that middle-aged adults that were cognitively healthy, but that had ApoE epsilon 4, at least in one of the alleles, and also had parental history of dementia due to Alzheimer's, they actually did show a higher amount of vessel stiffness compared to age-matched people that did not have ApoE epsilon 4 and did not have any familiar history of dementia, which suggests, again, there is, there is something happening in the vasculature that is linked some way or another to Alzheimer's disease. And it's not surprising necessarily because vascular disease and Alzheimer's disease, they, they share risk factors. And APOE, epsilon 4 is one of them, uh, but there are other risk factors that are shared between diseases. And speaking of which, now your paper also looked at traditional vascular markers like high blood pressure and high cholesterol or the use of medications to normalize these levels or those levels, but they were not different among the groups of people that you were looking at in this preclinical, pre-disease population. However, you did find more small bleeds in people with amyloid and tau. And so what does that mean? So I think it means uh, generally two things. One is that we do have sensitive vascular imaging markers uh, that are more specific than systemic markers, as the one that you mentioned. And regarding the presence of microbleeds in these subjects that had both amyloid and tau burden, is likely related to the downstream effects of the toxicity that these proteins create on the neural environment. 
at this point, these participants likely has been accumulating amyloid for 20 years. And you can imagine this can lead to cerebral amyloid angiopathy, for example, the deposition of amyloid and on the membranes of the vessels leading to microbleeds. I think microbleeds on this group that had more AD biomarkers, is, it just indicates that, that they're, they're, they're way further along on this progression, ultimately leading to cognitive decline. And so overall, why is this an important finding in the field of Alzheimer's disease? And do you see potential for 4D flow MRIs being incorporated into a clinical setting? I think it's important because we are finally getting to the point where those models that could only be tested in animal experiments, now we have non-invasive technology that can let, let us study a specific ADCVD interaction mechanisms in human populations. And I think here with the research that people like Kevin Johnson, uh, Laura Eisenmenger, and other researchers in radiology and medical physics are doing, we are creating an imaging platform uh, that we, we want and we will be able to share with the larger uh, ADRC sites and other multi, uh, multi-site longitudinal studies uh, that will definitely bring a key uh, missing information of the vascular function in related to Alzheimer's disease and interactions. So overall, I think we're moving in, in a very interesting direction. We are finally seeing how these imaging markers can help us understand uh, the relationship between these two types of diseases. And we're, we're getting to the point of, of sharing it with other sites, which is very exciting. One of the things I love about your answer, Leonardo, is that you mentioned the different groups of people who are involved in this work, and that's medical physics, that's radiology, that's neuroscientists, neuropsychologists, geriatricians, neurologists. I mean, this is it's requiring a lot of different perspectives in order to put all of this together, which is wonderful. And so I know you, your study can't answer this upcoming question, but do you think it's possible that exercise and maintaining a healthy weight through eating healthy foods and getting good sleep. Could it change some of the results that you're seeing with this 4D MRI and in essence lead to a healthier brain? Regarding your first comment, it's just amazing how clinicians and scientists can come together here at the W Madison to help each other to get to the point where you can answer these questions. I don't think it can be done any other way. If people are working on silos, we, we cannot make the kind of advancement that we're doing. And so that's why UW Madison is, is such a great place to work that. And regarding your, your, your second question, overall, we know that vascular dementia, a stroke, uh, cerebral small vessel disease, it, it leads to deterioration of brain health. And we know that hypertension is one of the risk factors. And, and we know that we can, if we take good care of ourselves, by eating well and exercising, we can create fitness of the cardiovascular and cardiorespiratory system that most certainly will lead to a reduced chance of developing some of these uh, problems that will lead to cognitive impairment. And regarding his sleep, I just think it's common sense. Either nature is wrong <laughs> and we know more than nature. But when you think about it, 
we spend such a big chunk of time of our day devoted to sleep. We, we are not looking for food at that time. We are not mating at that time. We're vulnerable to predators, <laughs> thinking about like our ancestors. But nature decided that this is so important. You have to sleep. Uh, that I think it's, it's, uh, it's common sense that we have to take a good care of our sleep too. And some really cool research um, is coming out suggesting that brain clearance gets enhanced during sleep. You get these CSF flow waves that have some very interesting uh, functionalities and changes in amplitude that happen through the phases of sleep. So most certainly eat well, exercise and, and sleep well, and it, it will help you keep your brain healthy. You have a pretty strong answer there. And so, you know, I thought I was going to peg you for this next question as someone who's going to tell me exercise, and maybe that's still be your answer. But I always like to know what our, our cutting edge scientists do for their own personal health in keeping their brain as sharp as possible. I would have assumed you're going to say exercise, but you seem pretty set on sleep too. What is the one thing that you focus the most on to keep your brain sharp? <laughs> I, I wish it was asleep, although I, I, I sleep not too bad, but one could always sleep more. I think uh, in, in today's digital age, nobody sleeps eight hours. Perhaps very few people are sleeping seven these days. Me, for the most part, right now, I enjoy yeah exercising, but particularly swimming a lot. I, I like the idea of just jumping into the pool and let my thoughts uh, run wild. And it's very refreshing uh, for and then I feel like I did some cardio for respiratory fitness. And also I'm trying to get better at chess, but it seems like, like my 17 year old nephew gets the better part of me all the time. So I don't know how much better can I get, but I am naively optimistic that uh, you should always try to get better. <laughs> so lately those things keep my brain sharp when I'm outside of work. Well, I appreciate those honest answers. And, and with that, I'd like to thank you for being on Dementia Matters. And as more of your work evolves, we, we look forward to having you back on. Thank you so much, Nate, for the invitation, for the time. And please keep doing what you do. Uh, this is a great podcast and of interest to a large audience. So thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified about upcoming episodes. You can also listen to our show by asking your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. And please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Kaylin Rauerdink. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. 
To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and Dementia Matters, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. Follow us on Facebook at Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and find us on Twitter at WisconsinADRC. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.